Well, yeah, good morning, Ben. It's great um, to have you here having a chat with us. really appreciate your, your time today um, to talk about the Voice to Parliament referendum. Um, for people listening, just as context, it's just yesterday, Anthony Albanese gave uh, at a big event held in Adelaide um, an announcement that we're going to referendum on the 14th of October. So everything's kicking into overdrive now in terms of the public campaign and the public debate about The Voice. So, yeah, I really appreciate um, you taking some time just, just to step back a little bit from the fray and to have some analysis of this proposal, um, where it came from historically and the impact that it's having on Aboriginal politics. Um, and loved your comments on Q&A, mm-hmm. Ben. It was really wonderful to have your voice there. So, yeah, really appreciate you joining us today. Awesome, yeah. Well, thanks, Patty. And solidarity with solidarity. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to, yeah, to join the show and also zoom out. Um, so much of the conversation has been so familiar. We're just treading over the same tired territory and very rarely do we have the opportunity to zoom out and um, take ourselves out of the weeds. So where did the proposal come from? I mean, it's well documented that this isn't a proposal that was born into existence a couple of years ago, but rather a, a couple of decades long pursuit to figure out, right, and led by a couple of key architects, how we can complete the Commonwealth, how we can give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a sense of pride in being Australian. And I think that, um, you know, the the idea of recognition came at a significant impasse in, you know, political time, both at a domestic level, but also within the subset of Aboriginal affairs. So, um, you know, Shireen Morris has published her account of how the voice to parliament or the idea of a constitutionally enshrined advisory body came to be. Um, You know, it was around 2014 when Tony Abbott was prime minister um, that Shireen Morris, Noel Pearson and a small group of select constitutional conservatives came together to hatch out an idea or a path forward as to how recognition could be achieved. So in that room was, you know, Shireen Morris, Noel Pearson, Julian Lisa, Greg Craven, Anne Twomey, and a guy called Damien, who um, I've forgotten his surname, but Noel was Freeman. the only... Damien Freeman. And, you know, Noel was the only black person in the room and, according to Shireen Morris's account, barely said a word throughout it. So the idea is not one that is born out of our collective aspirations. It is something that has been prescribed to us. And as many people within the community know... It has been reverse engineered via a set of dialogues across the country to give the idea legitimacy. And then really importantly, it culminated with the Uluru Statement from the heart, which really put this thing on the front uh, or, or, or thrusted this thing forward in a way that made it quite irresistible, right? And quite, um, that gave it significant validity, particularly knowing that there was all these signatories that... It, was, it happened in the heart of Aboriginal Australia at Uluru, which takes up a special place in the white imagination. Um, so, yeah, it's not something that, was, that has just happened recently, but it's a, a couple of decades-long pursuit to, as Marcia Langton and Noel Pearson say, complete the Commonwealth through Aboriginal recognition. Mm. 
And I'm interested maybe in um, just hearing your thoughts a little bit more on that whole question of being recognised in the Constitution. I mean, this was something that predates the voice proposal. Um, you know, I mean, from my recollection, in terms of the contemporary iteration of the discussion, you had Howard um, expressing um, a desire to recognise Aboriginal people in the Constitution just prior to the 2007 election. I mean, there was some discussion about it in the ATSIC days, back in the ATSIC days, I know that as well. But we had, yeah, in this recent iteration, um, Howard talking about constitutional recognition, then the Rudd and Gillard government talking about constitutional recognition, an expert panel process. Then we had a major campaign, the Recognise campaign, which from my recollection, I would be interesting to hear your thoughts on it, was roundly rejected by the Aboriginal community, the idea that just recognising Indigenous people in the constitution without any substantive rights or change was not something that the community wanted. But yeah, I'm, I am interested just in your more general thoughts about this whole question of being recognised and the significance of that, because that has come to occupy quite a central what part in how this is now being promoted. Yeah, I mean, recognising what? Recognising us as people, like, wow. You know, if we zoom out and use a 24 hour clock as an analogy, right? Like. Blackfellas have been here for the entirety of 24 hours and there's another group of people that have set up under a foreign system that has been here for a matter of 24 seconds, right? The fact that we have been here and that our sovereignty has not been ceded, there has been no... We have not been conquered because I'm here talking to you. There's been no agreement making. The land was not vacant. You know, the... the Like, the idea that we are subservient to the same institutional machinery that continues to slaughter us is insane. And on top of that, I mean, under first law, under tribal law, under Australia's domestic law, under international law, like this system here is an illegal occupation. If another country goes somewhere else around the world and does what Australia is doing now, it is deemed illegal under Australia's own law. So I find it very difficult to legitimise you know, this romanticised idea that this colony is here legally, that it is belonging here and that this system of government is a healthy thing for these lands, for its waters and the people that were born out of it. So, you know, recognised was rejected. This is another version of the same thing. I mean, explicitly the only difference is that advisory body that provides non-binding advice to a government that legally isn't compelled to even acknowledge it, engage it, respond to it, act upon anything that it says, is the only difference, right? And, you know, I'm, I'm just embarrassed that we have, and I use the word embarrassed, and I, I think it's a waving of the white flag or, you know, in the third round of a boxing fight, it's the coach throwing the towel into the ring, that we have just given away our inherent rights and minimised our sovereignty down to a toothless lobby group. I, I'm just, it, it, it blows my mind that we, could, that we could get caught up in that. And in the process of being caught up in that, that we could have Aboriginal people telling us that it's going to solve the world's greatest challenges. You know, your question is what, what does this mean to you know, the Aboriginal movement to the struggle. I think it, um, 
you know, if it fails, and I've said this before, it has to be an incredibly regenerative moment. It means that we have to take this era of practical reconciliation, of recognition to the scrap heap and usher in an era of reckoning through a rights-based agenda. Now, when I say the words reckoning, everyone, uh, people have said, well, what is that, a civil war? You know, they kind of um, project their own insecurities or their own barbarism onto, you know, blackfellas as if we'd even have the the fortitude to commit a genocide or to commit ongoing dispossession against another group of people. But what I mean by that is that we go back within and that we institute a rights-based agenda because as Indigenous peoples, we have an exclusive status. We have exclusive rights to self-determination, to self-government. If the agenda isn't nations to nation, our own governments to government, you know, as, as equals at a bare minimum, then there really is just no point uh, in pursuing whatever the idea is because fundamentally to close this out, uh, this question out, Patty, it's, it's, you know, that the Australian constitution is an illegal document. It is like a white supremacist manifesto and is membership without protections to the KKK going to protect you from its behaviours? No. No, thanks, Ben. I just, yeah, I mean, really profound thoughts. And I think, you know, a perspective that needs to be heard more widely. I mean, as a socialist, you know, I look at the whole debate about the Constitution with my head in my hands a lot mm. because it's discussed in this way that this is somehow some expression of popular nationhood, you know, the, the Australian character, like all of these sorts of ideas. And the inclusion of Aboriginal people is, as you said before, it's put in profoundly nationalist terms totally. as a way that we're complete our nation, that we're going to own your 60,000 years of history. I very much often hear it discussed that, you know, this is Australian history, the 60,000 years of occupation, you know, and it, and it is very concerning <laughs> the way that that's been discussed. But, but more than that, I think, you know, the Australian Constitution is, is not a document that expresses anything about popular rights, for example. Mm. There's nothing in the Australian Constitution that creates any rights for any people in mm. Australia. Uh, it's, a, it's fundamentally about property. It's about the way that the Commonwealth government will interact with state governments who historically controlled property and the way that property was actually, you know, sort of existed in the market and traded and other economic mm. sort of functions of capitalism. It's mm. basically a blueprint for how the Australian capitalist class is going to make decisions amongst themselves about how we are governed. Mm. Um, <laughs> but it does, I also sort of feel that you have this function of the whole discussion which really distorts an understanding and an idea out there for ordinary people about what the Constitution really is. Yeah, um, I, we are, you know, and say, say in comparison to the US, right, where everyone, you know, has a copy of the Constitution and reads it and knows it and, well, to varying degrees... But yeah, as a as a document and its its purpose and function, I feel like here in this country that we don't have the necessary level of acumen to be able to understand what this all means, um, and that we are very much removed from, you know, what this document is, what it represents, what its purpose is. But yeah, if to to think that again, like membership into the KKK with no protections is going to be a pathway towards freedom, towards emancipation. And the other thing that I'll say, Patty, is that, you know, this incremental go-slow approach 
very much aligned with, you know, the neoconservative and free market thinking, which, you know, Noel Pearson has been a big advocate for over the years, you know, very much about jobs, very much about employment, very much about, you know, Aboriginal, Aboriginal people participating in the Australian dream as if that gives us a level of self-esteem. And, you know, he's advocated for that very much in a sense where, you know, the expectation is, is that you give up all of the things that have sustained you in order to, in his words, participate, but really assimilate into the broader Australian dream. So, yeah, the, like, can a reconciliation action plan stop Woodside from plundering and polluting everything? No. I mean, effectively, that's what this is. It's a, it's a, you know, the, the, the first tier of a reconciliation action plan for a Commonwealth government. And for those that continue to tell me as well and many others that this is a positive first step, I mean, my response is we're, we're stuck in the middle of an oval surrounded by quicksand and any baby step is towards further suffocation. And that's the prism that I continue to see this thing through and it's not hyperbole. It's a really like irrefutable reality. And yeah, it's sad that this is our current state of affairs after 235, 240 years of, um, of occupation and oppression. Yeah, no, again, really, really important perspective. I would maybe just drill down a little bit into something that you sort of mentioned there about the Australian dream and Indigenous people joining the Australian mainstream as a very heavy component of the way mm. that this is being discussed. One of the things that's really notable to me looking at the Yes campaign and reading the brochure, for example, that came in the mail from the Electoral Commission articulating the formal Yes campaign is it's all about, you know, health, housing, education, jobs, you know, meat and three veg, like this is the way that we're, you know, we're going to get the basics of life um, for Indigenous people properly looked after. But the historic demands of the Indigenous movement and the things that actually are Indigenous demands that, you know, are the components of your indigeneity, like mm. the question of land is absent. It's not even discussed. Land isn't even mentioned, um, whereas that's foundational for both Indigenous identity and Indigenous struggle. Um, the question of sovereign rights, the question of self-determination and the right to actually control your own affairs. I just wonder if you have any comments on what the impact of this discourse as being the main discussion about what Indigenous people want or where they're, where they're going, what impact do you think that has on that broader historic agenda, you know, of getting the land back and being recognised as totally. having rights to control themselves? Yeah, it's, I mean, there's probably a couple of simultaneous thoughts that are perhaps even contradictory, right? Like, what I am seeing in this moment, and as we have seen over the years, is that you know, the, this referendum, I think, is separating the trackers from those that are being tracked. You know, I think that there's a group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that aren't democratically elected by us, aren't from all of our different nations, that are charting a path forward that they believe is best for the rest of the continent. And that's a really dangerous thing. But the fact of, you know, when you talk about housing if we go back to your point around housing and health, like I was in Doomadgee a few weeks ago and Indigenous people across Queensland are more than five, are 560 times more likely to get rheumatic heart disease, right? And it is a disease that is exclusively linked to poverty. Now, they've got, like traditional owners in Doomadgee have got direct lines to all of the Queensland ministers. They know what's going on. 
to, you know, to push a people into a state where they are 560 times more likely to contract an entirely preventable disease, that doesn't come from benevolence or good intentions. Like that only comes from, from dedication, you know, from systematic de- dedication year on, year on year, year on year, generation after generation. The thing on housing, right? Like you're telling me that the Commonwealth or the territory government where I live, right, don't know how to build houses. You know, the reason why houses aren't being built, particularly in places like the Northern Territory or what's considered rural or remote Queensland, the same in WA, is that the dispossession and displacement is quintessential for the resources sector to sustain. All of the resources that are required in the current economy and in the diversified future economy as um, you know, Australia looks to position itself as a renewable energy superpower. All of those critical and rare earth minerals, whether it be manganese, whether it be iron ore, whether it be copper, whether it be cobalt, you name it, sits underneath the feet of Indigenous peoples. Now, for as long as Aboriginal people, particularly in the, you know, what Cato Muir called like the unsettled lands or beyond, you know, the, the current into the um, moving further into the exterior or interior, sorry. Enabling Aboriginal people in, in those parts of the continent to live really deeply enculturated lives is an affront and a threat to the economy that Australia only knows and to an economy where it's, you know, the big players, the fossil fuel companies, the big extractors who, you know, jointly own and control our government with the US, you know, with the White House and the Pentagon. Like, they need that space. They need those resources. So that's why houses aren't being built in these parts of the country. Education, or they talk about sending kids to school. I mean, in the Northern Territory, they don't even have teachers in the classroom. But yet the blame's still being placed on kids not going to school. I mean, teachers haven't been in the classroom for years. So this, this whole thing of the Australian dream as a mechanism that will bring great self-esteem, that will bring great purpose, that will bring great health, health outcomes. You know, I look at the Australian dream and people that are living it and it's empty, it's shallow, it's desperate, it's ugly. It's devoid of so many remarkable things that we've known since the beginning of time. The current outlook and the people that have been positioned as leaders to lead it, yeah, isn't one that I'm inspired by whatsoever and categorically know that it won't bring about the level of change that we are deserving of and that we need because a lot of our communities are very much in an apocalyptic state and if you think that you can go slow, incrementally reform your way out of it, then... Um, I suppose that you're committing to the ongoing genocide that is, um, is yet to seize. The other question building on some of that I'd like to ask you about is this Albanese government and the impact that the voice debate and the flagship voice referendum as their signature policy has, what, what, what impact have you, are you actually seeing that on how the government's agenda is playing out and how it's playing out on the ground? What's, what's your yeah. overall impact? It's a remarkable distraction. I mean, let's just let's rattle some things off off the top of my head of what's happened in this, in this term of government, and which is very generous, right? The fact that you're going, okay, let's just isolate 
18 months of government under the winds of change and stress test the whole premise and promise of this proposal. We've got the Perdaman fertiliser plant on the Burrup Peninsula. We've got the fracking of the Beetaloo Basin in the Northern Territory. We've got the building of the Middle Arm Petrochemicals plant in Darwin. We've got the commitment to exploiting gas for Santos in the Barossa, which goes against the Tiwi Islanders. We've got kids still being caged right across the country. I mean, I live a stone's throw away from Dondale, you know, where 10-year-olds are still sitting in solitary confinement on remand, haven't even been, um, haven't even faced a judge. We've got attorney generals that refuse to lift the criminal age of responsibility to 14. We've got Aboriginal legal services that are running out of funding. We've got the... uh, a rations card that Labor has reformed all the way back to its racist roots with income management as they initially designed it as well. We've got, you know, Banksia Hill still operating. We've got Queensland governments, all of which are Labor, all of which support The Voice, suspending the Human Rights Act for a second time to put more kids in jail cells. We've got the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody still, still sitting dormant. We've got the Bringing Them Home report still sitting dormant. We've got spit hoods still allowed despite, you know, a, you know very long campaigns, you know, to, to end them. We've got the safeguard mechanism that's been instituted that allows companies to continue to pillage and plunder. I mean, the list goes on, right? And all of this goes very much against what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want, right? This is like not even the low-hanging fruit has been picked, but... I think another interesting thing that's maybe been missing throughout this whole discussion is there's this really contrived narrative that, you know, the coalition and the right side of politics, which is very much a fascist cohort of, of, of politicians, right, is that they're the only racist option in this whole equation. Like, who is Labor? Like, what is Labor's history with blackfellas beyond, like, the beautiful words that they lull us into? Like, who is Anthony Albanese? Who is Labor? And, you know, I can account for how I end up on the same side of the equation as the Gary Johns of the world. But what hasn't been accounted for is how blackfellas and also those that are pushing yes end up on the same side of equation as Anthony Albanese and Labor, as... BHP and Woodside, as Rio Tinto, as Rio Tinto, the Business and Minerals Councils of Australia, that cohort just there, they enact the vision that Gary Johns and Mark Latham and Pauline Hanson and Peter Dutton espouse. They are the ones, as a collective, that create it. If no is the only racist option, then how does how does Mark Texter, who is the populist pollster who learnt his craft under Ronald Reagan, who was the go-to man for John Howard, who actually was responsible, right, for instituting at more than a decade of, like, violence, of, of fanning the flames of racism that led to the abolition of ATSIC, that led to the winding back of, you know, our rights, which led to the dilution of native title. How does he not only become a part of... Yes, 23, but how does he spearhead it as a board member? If Yes is a grassroots campaign, how does it not just attract him, but how does it also attract Tony Nutt, who was the chief of staff to John Howard as a board member? How does it attract Catherine Tanner, who's a BHP director? How do these people that 
end up on the board of a grassroots and inverted commas campaign that is going to deliver, wait for it, transformative change for Indigenous people. Like for all of these, you know, environmentalists out there and, and, and these Greens people who want to look across the seas and say Israel is an apartheid state that's occupying Palestinian land, but then in the second breath, say that they're advocating for a voice to parliament and that Aboriginal people should be absorbed into the Australian state. Like, how do these people account for these contradictions? Like, I can account for how I get on the same side of the ledger as these other people that I despise, but the Yes campaign is yet to account for their unity ticket. Who's funding them? And this isn't conspiracy like tinfoiled hat. Who is funding the Yes 23 campaign? For all of those that have you know, this commitment to integrity in politics and knowing where the money's coming from. Where's the money coming from for Yes23? I know Rio's given a few million dollars to it. Who else has given money to it? So, you know, that's the stuff that's not being communicated. And contextually, I think it's important in the lead up to the referendum that the those on the Yes side of the equation, irrespective of what their answer is, give a good faith account as to how their campaigns can not only attract these people, but be led by them not only so people are informed when they make their decision, but also after the vote, you know, that we can hopefully find ways to where we want to make our way back to one another so that we can continue the long fight for change. It's just, it's really refreshing, Ben. It's really refreshing hearing your perspective. And I just, I do have just a couple, a couple more questions. I might ask them together and just let you finish because yeah, I I could talk to you all morning about this, I'm sure. But the two, the two things I guess I, I would like you to finish on is firstly, you know, we're set for a pretty punishing six weeks. I mean, there's the whole mainstream discourse around that's pro-referendum that we've critiqued today. I mean, there's also the out-and-out, you know, mask-off racism that um, is very intense and that people are also experiencing from the Peter Dutton No campaign. I wonder if you might just have any comments actually on that, like on this particular moment and the level of vitriol and racism that your communities are being subject to, but also to revisit a comment you made earlier about what next after the referendum mm. and, where, and where, are we, where are we coming? And just within that, Ben, because I have heard you talk about this before and it's something that certainly matters a lot to us as solidarity and our activism is the existential climate crisis that we're currently in. I mean, we're seeing you know, the world collapse around us at the moment, the like absolute, you know, crazy situation in terms of weather in the Northern Hemisphere, what's going on with the, you know, Antarctic ice sheet, the size of Western Australia missing. It seems to me like we're sleepwalking, like, you know, there's none of this is being discussed or covered in the press um, in any real way, um, even though it's something that's about to hit us bloody hard and make life very, very difficult for a whole lot of people, least of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So maybe if, in, if your comments as well about the way forward, you could just maybe touch on the climate crisis and what that means for the struggle for Indigenous rights as well. This is so immaterial in comparison to what is the, the context that we're living in, not even just the historical arc that this is... Um, that this is tied to, but the present and the future that we're sleepwalking into, as you say. But in regards to the vitriol, I suppose I was talking to this with my partner this morning. I mean, if news outlets and mob have to share something and then have a, um, you know, a page linking to suicide centre hotlines at the conclusion of it, I think that speaks to the significance of the, the weight of this. But ultimately, 
of course that was going to happen. You know, when you try and absorb yourself into a mainstream settler state that just wants you erased. And I'd say for any Aboriginal people that are listening, I've grown a thicker skin for that level of vitriol only because I know the people that are challenging me or questioning me, you know, or questioning our identity or questioning our right of place don't know their own. You know, that they're shallow, devoid, empty people who don't know their own story, who don't know anything about themselves or their own communities or cultures that... So anything that they kind of, you know, throw towards us is immaterial to me. On your thing around, you know, what does the next six weeks look like, you know, to polling day, I think what is the next six years like? I don't think that October 14th is the finish line for this level of vitriol that we're experiencing, this level of, you know, intense scrutiny, you know, what the voice doesn't do or what the voice does is entrenches us into the politics of this place. It actually enables us to become a kicking ball. Self-government is, is taking ourselves out of it, is standing, you know, away or alongside, you know, the settler state and, and, and being in control of our own affairs. But unfortunately, the proposal actually entrenches Aboriginal affairs and politics into, you know, further into the mainstream. So the next six weeks is going to be, yeah, horrible, but, uh, yeah, we're going to be a kicking ball for the next six years is if it gets up, if, um, yeah, if it gets up is how I see it. But, yeah, to your point, Paddy, around, like, we are very much on the precipice of no return and climate change is something that Indigenous peoples have been observing, confronting, combating for hundreds of years. Like, it's not a new concept for us. But, you know, we are very much in, you know, the 1.5 degrees. You know, there's a whole lot of racist compromises that are already baked into electrification, into renewable energy, into 1.5 degrees as a threshold. That disproportionately impacts First Nations peoples. It means that our communities are going to experience the floods, experience the fires, you know, parts of the desert, you know, and even the Kimberley is going to experience hundreds of days of over 40 degrees this year. Like many of our communities that we've belonged to for more than millennia are going to be uninhabitable. And what's fascinating is that the rest of the population hasn't connected the dots in the sense that Indigenous justice is climate justice. If you want to keep fossil fuels in the ground and stop companies from pluming carbon into the atmosphere, then only an Indigenous rights-based agenda can achieve that. So if the voice gets up, we are permitting another generation of pervasive destruction, of pervasive extraction, of pervasive exploitation. And, um, you know, in the grand context and scheme of things, like a voice to parliament is... um, it's not even putting a Band-Aid on a shotgun wound. It's me walking into the theatre with, yeah, a shotgun wound through my chest and the doctors tending to my toenail. It, it just is... Uh, th- there's countless analogies that you could give to it, but it's so ludicrous and offensive and sad. And unfortunately, I do believe that there are Aboriginal people that... Uh, unknowingly complicit to that.
Well, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks so much for your time, Ben. It's been really wonderful to have this discussion. Is there is there anything else you'd like to say to the listeners out there? Any other points you'd like to make on this issue before we close today? Um, or maybe just one towards community, right, is, you know, the tide will come in, it'll go out, the sun will rise, it will fall. Like, I think if we can you know, not be distracted by this too much, as difficult as it is, and remind each other that we will we'll get what we settle for. You know, my position is that no deal is better than a horrendously lopsided one and, you know, that we are deserving of authority, we're de- deserving of agency, we're deserving of independence and none of that exists within an advisory. We have inherent rights, we have exclusive status and, you know, practical reconciliation, as Patrick Dodson wrote a few years ago, is just a bunch of weasel words to distract everyone, you know, from that reality. Awesome. Thanks again, Ben. Thanks, Patty.